We talk about movies. We listen to songs. My God, this reminds me of when we were young. Let me find out if this movie's like just like it was the last time. So we might be exactly like we were before we realized we discovered we were old. That age has blessed us. Let's discuss a movie. It's filled with pop songs when we were young. Hi, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we find any excuse whatsoever to write a song parody. I'm Becky, the <laughs> podcast host most likely to be your type, be it wilted flower, bright and bubbly, <laughs> or smoldering temptress. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be heroes just for one night. And I am Seth, surprisingly the host who's not singing in the intro, and also the host who most likely can't, can't, can't watch this movie in one sitting. (laughs) Welcome to the Moulin Rouge, the movie that earns its exclamation point many times over. (laughs) This is part two of our Baz Luhrmann Spectacular Spectacular. In part one, we discuss the Australian director's hit adaptation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Uh, There were mixed uh, reactions to that. (laughs) Baz's follow-up came five years later and was an even bigger hit, earning huge worldwide success at the box office as well as several Oscars. Guys, are you ready to return to the Moulin Rouge? I guess Uh, I can, can, can. (laughs) (laughs) Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Please don't start that again. All you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the street. All you need <laughs> is love. Love is just a game. I was made for loving you, baby. You were made for loving me. The only way of loving me, baby, is to pay a lovely fee. Just one night, just one night. There's no way, cause you can't pay. In the name of love, one night in the name of love. You crazy fool, I won't give in to you. Don't. So guys, thank you for indulging me with a parody of Adele's When We Were Young. Hey, that's the name of this podcast. Because I thought it would be appropriate for an episode where we're covering Moulin Rouge, which is just filled with pop songs with slightly different lyrics and slightly different uh, <laughs> vocal talents. <laughs> so Someone's going to have to tell Mike that we got a new theme song now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So before we get started talking about Moulin Rouge, we have some new Patreon donors. That's right. We have a Patreon and we just want to shout out our donors. Thank you so much for supporting us. Much like the Moulin Rouge, we rely on patronage (laughs) and the free and generous assistance of those with the means to aid us in the production of this entertainment. But unlike the Moulin Rouge, we don't sleep with you for the money. So <laughs> that sorry. is that is not one of the perks we will be offering. 
If that's what you were hoping for with your donation, you may have to cancel. But if you have donated just because you like our show, which is what we are hoping for, then thank you very much. Yes, thank you to, we have new donors. We have some that have been contributing for a while. So all of you are super awesome. And it really means a lot, honestly. It really does. And especially in lockdown times, hopefully coming mostly to an end soon, we have had to put up money every month so that we can do remote recording sessions to bring you our podcast at a high quality. So yeah, all of your donations are definitely very helpful and appreciated. So last time we talked about Baz Luhrmann and his career and how he came up in the theater world and then turned to movies. And after Romeo and Juliet was released and before Milan Rouge, there was something that Baz Luhrmann really gave to pop culture that we need to talk about. You could even say he <laughs> rubbed it on all of our backs and smeared it all, all over our faces. Oh! <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, but I guess you could. If that was the case, that was not consensual then or now. <laughs> Becky is, of course, referring to what I consider Baz Luhrmann's greatest contribution to pop culture, which is everybody's free, parentheses, to wear sunscreen, end parentheses. This was a song, believe it or not. Was it? <laughs> which I never knew really the history behind this song until, you know, I had to remind my co-hosts about this monumental achievement by Mr. Luhrmann. Strangely, did not devote an entire episode to it, so I had to say, hey guys, you know, this... This is important, too. I discovered that it originated as a commencement speech written for the Chicago Tribune in June 1997 by Mary Schmidt. I believe that is that is how her name is spelled. So I'm sure. going to assume that that's how it is pronounced. So she wrote this. Uh, it was a commencement speech. It was her article. And she was just saying, like, this is the advice I would give. And her advice was to wear sunscreen because she didn't when she was younger. And then she saw a young woman sunbathing and was thought to herself, man, I hope that girl's wearing some sunscreen because I didn't. And I assume maybe she has some uh, leathery skin issues. I don't know. I didn't look at a picture of her. But anyway... <laughs> I thought you did your research, Chris. Yeah, seriously, Chris. It appeared, and then somehow it got misattributed to Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and this whole legend was created that it was him who wrote it, which is not true at all. He had, he had nothing to do with it. Boz Lerman uh, and his co-producers were recording the album Something for Everybody, which came out in 98. They read this and believed the Vonnegut rumor and were trying to like get Kurt Vonnegut's permission to record. And then he was like, I didn't write that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it was much easier when they realized it was Mary Schmidt, who was just like, yeah, go ahead, record it. They did. And it became a pretty monster hit. It reached number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US. Um, it was super popular also in Europe. The original text was written to the class of 97, but they changed it to 99 because that's when it was released as a single. I remember I was a couple years away from graduation, but I was approaching that age. So it always like stuck with me as like a real graduation song. <laughs> and it's probably what I think of the most. When I think of Baz Luhrmann, it's not Romeo and Juliet or Moulin Rouge. It's this song. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. 
Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they've faded. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. I think I always thought that it was his voice on the track, but it is not. So that's how I picture Buzz Lerman, and it's not <laughs> him. You guys heard this song, I assume, back when you guys were in high school? No. I mean, kind of. I, I don't really remember anything except it's spoken word. Really? I, ne- I never yeah. heard this. I never heard this song But I did, as I've explained in the podcast before, I was a terminally online child. (laughs) From a young age, I was AOL addicted. And I do remember either seeing it on Snopes, like which was one of the first fact-checking websites, but I remember reading that commencement address somewhere on the internet and seeing it attributed to Kurt Vonnegut. And then like, I remember doing more like internet sleuthing at the time and like learning, oh no, it was just by this woman. And no, I never heard this song. It was very surprising to me that he made an album and also that it was like this popular. That's so weird. Cause like you guys were talking about the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack as being so huge. And to me, I heard this so much more than any of those songs. Nope. I mean, Love Fool was very like ubiquitous, but like other than that, this was like all over. But I guess, yeah, I guess it depends on what you were listening to. Perhaps it was a Seattle thing, like the radio <laughs> stations I was listening to. 107.7, the end. Yes, we know, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, How we much know. are they paying you? Like even now? I'm hoping for future royalties. <laughs> okay, you're doing an on spec. Yeah. So Boz Lerman is not the one saying the words. No, the one who's actually speaking on the track is Lee Perry, a voice actor who you've also heard in Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2, if you've seen those movies, which I haven't. Oh. <laughs> I am not either. Well, then what did Boz Lerman do? <laughs> he just, he executive produced the track? Yeah, he produced it. Why is it Why is it credited to him? Because he, like, produced, like, song producers, they do the production of the song. But, yeah, but, but they don't re- <laughs> then release that as they're the artist, unless mm. they're the artist. <laughs> like, well... Yeah, I'm Becky, I'm with you. I'm, yeah. I'm really wondering why this is a Boslerman presents. I think that's why it's really confusing. But they're like dance artists also. Like Avicii has albums but doesn't sing and has like guest singers. Okay, that I get. But did Boslerman like mix it and he like made the arrangement and all that? Did he even press play? <laughs> like, like, I guess that's what I'm confused by. Like, is he like David Guetta in the sense that he like took all the things and made the track or he just like paid for it to happen? <laughs> I think that's a closer explanation. <laughs> just going to go out on a limb here and say, mm, yeah. Well, he's the only credited producer on this album. I'm looking it up now. I guess we did need a whole episode to devote to this. <laughs> It's always so strange to me when people like Baz Luhrmann, who are so well-known, happen to also have secret, like, music careers. I learned that, like, Mila Jovovich released Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of surprisingly good, thoughtful pop songs in the 90s and 2000s, and she's, like, released a couple albums. I just have no idea of these people and their secret music talents. Yeah, Paris Hilton, you know, really tearing up the dance floor (laughs) at, at certain points in her career. Well, I mean, he was instrumental in the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. I don't know exactly to what degree, but he, you know, was putting a lot of that together too. So 
I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's a more talented musician than director. We don't know. We didn't talk about this in Romeo and Juliet, but Marius DeVries was the one who did the soundtrack and score for Romeo and Juliet. And he's the guy who produced Madonna's Ray of Light. Mm. Well, I guess Baz Luhrmann did nothing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at here, is that I really don't think Baz Luhrmann is actually doing anything. Mm. He's just kind of showing up. Well, he's very successful at whatever he does. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the Moulin Rouge! Exclamation point. Moulin Rouge was released in the U.S. on June 1st, 2001. The budget was $50 million. And the box office was 180 million. It spent 45 weeks in theaters, which is kind of unheard of these days. Particularly the, you these mean days. Theaters are unheard of these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, downer. Too soon. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Nicole Kidman was nominated for Best Actress. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Film Editing, Best Cinematography, Best Makeup, and Best Sound. It won Best Costume Design and Best Art Direction. The film was directed by Boz Lerman, written by Boz and Craig Pierce, his frequent uh, collaborator. It stars Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, John Leguizamo, Jim Broadbent, and Kylie Minogue as the Green Fairy. <laughs> Scene stealer Kylie Minogue. <laughs> mm-hmm. She won't let anyone else get a word in edgewise in this film. <laughs> the plot of Moulin Rouge is in the early 1900s, Christian, a poet, comes to the Bohemian Paris quarter of Montmartre and falls in love with Satine, a courtesan and the star of the body cabaret, the Moulin Rouge. Satine is promised to wed, or not wed, but just like bed, fuck, fuck. I guess, uh, the wealthy duke and save the Moulin Rouge from financial ruin. But she falls in love with Christian and the two do what they can to be together. The film tells its story using anachronistic pop songs. The filmmakers chose songs from mid to late 20th century, many decades after the setting of the film. In this way, Christian would appear to the other characters to be ahead of his time as a musician and a writer. It took two years to clear all the rights to all the songs used in the film. Some other actors who auditioned for the role of Christian are Leonardo DiCaprio, Hugh Jackman, Elijah Wood, Heath Ledger, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Actresses who auditioned for Satine include Catherine Zeta-Jones, Hilary Swank, Renee Zellweger, Kate Winslet, Drew Barrymore, and Sophie Ellis-Baxter. For all you, uh, wow. you obscure pop fans, and I know that Chris is. So, mm-hmm. do you know? Do you know her, Seth? Yes, of course. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. 
and this is Seth coming to you live from the fact-checking desk at When We Were Young, we have to admit to you that I have no idea who Sophie Ellis Bexter is at all. I googled her, and, and I am not familiar with her or her work in any way, shape, or form. I was thinking of Sophie B. Hawkins. On the When We Were Young podcast, we particularly pride ourselves on our honesty and integrity, and I apologize for not keeping my Sophies straight. Courtney Love also auditioned for the role of Satine, and even though she didn't get cast, and she seemed kind of bitter about it after she was really mad at Nicole Kidman for getting it, she did help the film clear the rights to use Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. The style of Moulin Rouge is inspired by vaudeville, cabaret, stage musicals, early Technicolor movies, operas, Bollywood, and the Greek tragedy of Orpheus and Eurydice. It is particularly based on the operas La Boheme, La Traviata, and Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld. Reviews, just like Romeo and Juliet, were split. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Edward Guthman of the San Francisco Chronicle gave the film three out of four stars, saying the film was so cheeky, aggressive, and bursting with vitality that it can't help being annoying and exhilarating all at the same time. Rita Kempley at the Washington Post... (gasps) said that it was a magnificent mess of a postmodern musical. Joy Arroyo from Sight and Sound um, gave it a negative review, saying the film is textbook postmodernism at its worst, a relentless pastiche of pop cultural sounds and representations sutured into the service of a cliché. And NPR said in the review that the movie is not going <laughs> to be for all tastes and that you either surrender to this sort of flamboyance or you experience it as overkill. I believe that's the most reviews read for any one thing on this show. <laughs> I know. I just thought, found them all interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a movie that it's good to get a spectrum for. I think so, yeah. too. Um, a little bit of trivia about the movie. John Leguizamo had to endure several weeks of physical therapy after filming <laughs> because he God. plays Toulouse-Lautrec, um, who is a little person, and he had to kneel for like... Or squat really low for, like, the entire movie. Um, The wardrobe department created 300 costumes, and at one point, 80 people were, um, like, in the costume team. And Nicole Kidman broke a rib trying to tighten her waist into a corset. She had to be replaced in the movie Panic Room because of injuries she endured on set. And Jodie Foster then uh, was cast in Panic Room. Interesting. Um, Nicole Kidman, like, does a quick, like, voice cameo in there, and that must be why. Mm Mm-hmm. It is. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. The song Come What May is the only original song in the film, and it was disqualified from a nomination for an Oscar (laughs) because it was originally written but unused for Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) And so that's their that's their rules, I guess, about what can be nominated. I think that's kind of dumb, but whatever. And Jim Broadbent has said that he has based his performance on Boz Lerman. (laughs) (laughs) That checks out. So, uh, did you guys see this growing up? If you did, what were your thoughts? I did not see this movie growing up. I intentionally avoided it. Freshman year at USC, I lived on uh, the cinema floor in this particular dorm building. Uh, and one Same-sies. night, yeah, <laughs> different years. But one one night, um, one of my neighbors a bit down the way was gonna watch Moulin Rouge, and I like hung around for about ten minutes. I think was the the longest I lasted, and then I just something in me it just turned off something very deep within me, and I just <laughs> left and went and did something else. Uh, and that was literally the last of this movie that I had seen until I 
sat down multiple times to watch <laughs> Moulin Rouge in preparation for this podcast. Boy, I can't wait to hear what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep it close to the vest. <laughs> Chris? Like Becky said, this movie came out in June of 2001. I think it's probably the latest movie that we've done as a like main topic on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I never even thought about that. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, it comes at a really interesting moment that we haven't talked about on the podcast because we haven't gotten this late in history. <laughs> it was right as I was graduating from high school. And so, like, as I was preparing for college, I was really struggling that summer with defining my independence. And I kind of prematurely strayed away from a lot of my friends and was purposefully just putting my, some distance between who I was in high school and who I wanted to be in college. I really wanted college to be, like, a different experience, a new experience. And so, yeah, I spent these, like, summer months mentally preparing for that. And when you're a teenager living with your parents, you don't have a ton of privacy. So I would often go kind of driving around and the Moulin Rouge soundtrack is one of the CDs I remember listening to for hours as I drove around, like kind of aimlessly, just sort of, you know, thinking and... and Wait, before you saw the movie? I think maybe. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Because like a lot of times they release it beforehand. So I might have, I might have even had, because it was like they, you know, released the um, Christina Aguilera, Maya, mm-hmm. Missy Elliott, Lady Marmalade. You know, that was out. So this soundtrack really, really brings me back to a very specific time and place and even kind of feeling that isn't really that associated with the movie <laughs> or the mu- the music itself. But I just remember like hearing it so often in these kinds of moments. And I, I did like especially listen to the Elephant Love medley, I think, a lot. So that said, um, I saw the movie and it was fine. <laughs> the movie was not meaningful to me really i i think i was kind of disappointed by it like i expected to like it more maybe because i liked the music independently well but i also think it like played a special role for you that the movie couldn't really replicate perfectly Mm -hmm. because it was like with you for a very particular time in a very particular emotional space and you know when you have music that does that for you i feel like there's no other possible repurposing of it that can measure up perfectly. Yeah, that's true. And so I know a lot of people, including uh, my friend Becky, who are fans of this movie. Who? and huh? <laughs> big, big fans of this movie. Like, there are people who love this movie. It's like, one of their favorite movies. And so in the spirit of, you know, being like, hmm, my friend's probably not crazy. Maybe I should watch it again. I have watched this movie a couple more times, and I'm always really trying to like it. <laughs> God, we should just cut to the chase, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think we should delay it a bit longer. And I will leave you in suspense about whether it worked this time or not. (laughs) Chris, I love that story um, of you driving around and listening to that. As a child of the suburbs, I did so, so fucking much of that kind of aimless, emotional, turmoil, spiral driving (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there was any, like, one particular soundtrack beyond just, you know, whatever music I loved listening to, Fiona Apple and Garbage and Alanis and all that stuff at the time. But being able to do that and having the freedom to, at at that age, you know, like, finally be able to leave the house and drive somewhere, anywhere, was a very important 
developmental milestone for me, like being able to feel free. So yeah, that really resonated with me. Yeah, it's exciting at the time to be able to do that. Like now it's like, oh my God, don't make me drive. But at the time, you know, you're excited (laughs) because it's new to you. And I know I listened to a lot of, like I was probably listening to much cooler things as well, you know, like actual band (laughs) CDs. I don't know why this is the one that like really takes me back to that. Maybe because like all my other CDs, I just have other memories associated. But that particular memory is just like really cemented in with Moulin Rouge for some reason. (laughs) Well, I saw this movie when it came out with my friend Eddie. I pretty much remember very vividly what it was like in the movie theater. I I felt like I was on a ride, like from the moment it started with like the 20th Century Fox and the curtains opening. So when the movie ended, we're just like sitting there in silence. (laughs) And I turn to him and I say, I don't know how you felt about that, but I fucking loved it. And he's like, me too. (laughs) So like, (laughs) even at the time, like I knew that this wasn't going to be a movie for everyone. Because I was like, oh man, I really hope he likes it. <laughs> so, so we can like talk about it and, and like it together. And I remember my first film class freshman year at film school. I believe, yeah, I started like three months later. Our teacher had us say our name and a movie that we saw that summer that we really liked. And so a guy named Brian um, that I believe both of you know, said that Moulin Rouge was a movie he really, really enjoyed. And I could like see people's eyes rolling and like you could clearly see that there is like disdain for this choice. So after class, I went up to him and I said, you know what? I really liked Moulin Rouge too. And I think I probably went before him and said something else, but I wanted him to know that like, like I got your back. (laughs) I think you said, will you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we became instant friends based off of our mutual love of Moulin Rouge. And then We ended up going to midnight screenings of Moulin Rouge together on Santa Monica, the promenade. There's a theater that was doing midnight Moulin Rouge screenings that were like Rocky Horror style. You said screenings, plural. Yes. On purpose. Yes. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) How many midnights? Did you spend a fortnight of midnights? I went at least twice, maybe three times, but at least twice. Because the first time I went, like, I remember being all dressed up and my, like, Moulin Rouge get up. And it was, like, Rocky (laughs) Horror style. So people were, like, yelling things at the screen, like, kind of, like, lovingly making fun of it. And I thought it was so much fun. And then I went a second time. But the second time I went, other people in the theater didn't get the memo. (laughs) And they were telling us to shut up. (laughs) Oh, no. It was a total buzzkill. (laughs) because <laughs> I was like, I wanted to scream things. That's what I thought this was. And so I didn't go again. <laughs> so I think it was probably just twice. But I adored this movie. I mean, I liked Romeo and Juliet. And then this movie came out and I just loved it so much. Loved the soundtrack. Loved the music. I saw Baz Luhrmann's La Boheme on Broadway because it was basically Moulin Rouge meets Rent, which is bas- like basically me in like in theater form. <laughs> it, right, in, in show form. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the Becky show. Yeah, and whenever I'm in Paris, which has been twice, <laughs> I make sure to stay in Montmartre and take pictures of me in front of the Moulin Rouge. I haven't actually seen a show there just because I hear it, it's actually like really cheesy and not worth the money. But I get very excited seeing the building and taking pictures in front of it. Like I always do my little like can-can kicks. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me very happy. So I was a very, very big fan of this movie. And I haven't seen it um, in a bit maybe like a few years i have taken like a little break from it so yeah what did you guys think of watching it in 2021 
Who should we start with? <laughs> Chris, I don't do you know, man. Go first? I think Queen said it best. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody know what we are looking for? Another hero, <laughs> another mindless crime behind the curtain in the pantomime. Hold the line. Does anybody want to take it anymore? <laughs> Beautiful. I'll say it's not as good as Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> as I as I teased in my little intro there when I was talking about my past with the film, I've tried to like this movie because there are <laughs> things about it that I feel like I should like. And I think I forget, like I always give it extra credit, like after like some time goes by and like, just like my memory of the things I don't like softens. And I'm like, maybe it wasn't so bad. Like, so I remember even, you know, as a high school student seeing it before film school, like thinking that was really like chaotic, like especially the editing when they walk into the Moulin Rouge for the first time. And I just remember being like, whoa, this is not like filmmaking wise working for me. And like really like was one of the first times, if not the very first time I probably ever like really called attention to the editing in in my assessment of a film. But going back to it this time, it'd been probably, you know, 10 years since I'd seen it. And I was like, you know what? It probably isn't quite as chaotic as I remember. Like, (laughs) because like, now like you know it's kind of the cliche is that like you know editing gets faster and faster and we're used to like really quick editing so i was like you know what i bet it like is like nothing now and like it'll (laughs) just feel like a smooth ride this is like an altman movie really Mm -hmm. we're gonna go for five minute long takes (laughs) were you surprised i was surprised (laughs) yeah and that's just kind of my reaction is like there are things I like in this movie, but it's like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. And it, it was just all the <laughs> same things that like drive me nuts. So, I mean, I honestly, in many ways could just like replay my conversation from the last episode about Romeo and Juliet. Cause I don't feel that differently. Like I, <laughs> pretty much the same kind of criticisms apply just in a like, I I will remove them from there and just stick the same criticisms on (laughs) scenes from this movie. Like, I don't hate it. I don't, like, absolutely loathe it or anything, even though there are certain things that drive me up the wall. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out what those things are in a bit, Seth. (laughs) This movie continued the unbroken Baz Luhrmann streak of super fun introductory sequences giving way to movies that do nothing but disappoint me from there on out. I loved the very, very introductory moments of this, uh, Becky, that you mentioned that place you like inside a theater. The 20th Century Fox. Where a conductor is conducting the Fox orchestra playing the 20th Century Fox theme. I love it. I thought that was so clever and immediately like got me ready to watch a very theatrical thing, literally about a theater. But then this movie just became relentlessly dumb and loud from there and just didn't let up. And my hate for this movie was cemented when they sing Smells Like Teen Spirit. (laughs) A lot of the other musical choices I could abide. Because again, I knew I was going to be watching a jukebox musical, which is admittedly very much not my thing. But I was willing to take it at its face value until Smells Like Teen Spirit. I don't know why that was the final straw. But if that hadn't been the final straw, the can-can would have been. (laughs) 
It's just so ornately dumb. It's so like exquisitely ornately done that on on some level it was kind of entertaining to watch just in kind of wonderment that <laughs> this much effort and artistry went into doing that. Again, Chris, like you, I should have in retrospect copied and pasted all of my notes from Romeo and Juliet, but I <laughs> I wrote the same things about slightly different scenes <laughs> about this movie. I basically have all the same critiques, except with this movie, they're all amplified because it, it seems to me in retrospect that Baz Luhrmann took the success of Romeo and Juliet as a permission slip to take take everything to an even further exponential degree of mania. I don't know about y'all, but I have an anxiety disorder. And one thing I realized, like having to watch it the whole way through, uh, was that this movie like triggers my anxiety. Like it literally (laughs) is an anxiety triggering thing to watch. I don't know if it's because of like the visual complexity. I think it's just more the kind of pace of it is just, it's like a manic movie. And Chris, like I, I too was totally blown away that even as numb as we've all become to editing effects and visual effects and all of that stuff and, and editing techniques and MTV quick cutting, this was actually surprising in how just completely over the top the editing was, as if there weren't a ton going on in every frame of this movie as it is. So yeah, this was legitimately a difficult watch for me. And it, there was a point at which my brain like came up with an alternate storyline for <laughs> this movie in order to like justify my continuing to watch it. And we'll, we'll get into that <laughs> later. But yeah, this was this was difficult. I still loved it <laughs> with <laughs> with reservations. <laughs> I do love it. This movie is very comforting to me because I've seen it so many times. So watching it felt good, like after not seeing it for a little bit, felt like a warm hug, I guess. But there were things that I didn't love that rubbed me the wrong way or annoyed me. So I think that my sparkling diamond is a little bit... <laughs> Uh, crested over or I'm trying to think of the right metaphor Um, (laughs) what happens to a diamond nothing scratched Uh, uh, that's kind of the point of diamonds diamonds somebody scratched my diamond (laughs) (laughs) my diamond got scratched over time well can I ask you a question about that Mm -hmm. so these things these are new things that you noticed on this watch that tarnished your diamond (laughs) Yes. Either I noticed them this time or I've seen the movie so many times that the annoying parts started to rise up to the surface Mm. and tarnish my enjoyment because it wasn't so new and fresh. Yeah, I just maybe I'm in a different spot in my life that the good parts didn't totally outweigh the bad, I think. Mm. So Mm. I I guess I'm a like overall, it's going to be a little bit before I watch this movie again. (laughs) I think think that's true for all of us. (laughs) So would you guys like if I started with what I didn't like, or do you want to start with anything that you liked? (laughs) Are those the only two options? Well, okay, I'll start with something positive. (laughs) I liked the 20th Century Fox logo. (laughs) It's a great opening. I remember even when I first saw this, like cracking up at Nicole Kidman. It's an early scene when she's first, like she's seducing both Ewan McGregor because she thinks he's the Duke and then she's seducing the real Duke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she is doing this really crazy performance that 
actually, I think, works. Like, it's it's a, it's manic like the rest of this movie's manic. But she's really good in this movie. I think it's a legitimately good performance, as good as an actor could do with the material. So, like, she's basically orgasming on the floors, like, saying naughty words <laughs> to the poetry. And there's, like, this miscommunication. And like we were talking in the Romeo and Juliet episode, I think mistaken identity is funny. And this is kind of that, where she thinks he's a duke and he thinks he's there to actually read poetry and there's so there's all this miscommunication and it gets very weird because she's a prostitute so that scene in like most of that scene i i thought was really funny it's a little bit funny this feeling in, inside i'm not one of those who can who can easily hide is this is this okay is this what you want oh poetry yes yes Yes, this is what I want, naughty words. <laughs> oh, I, I don't. Oh, naughty. I, I don't have much money, but oh, boy, if I did, yes. I'd buy a big oh, house where we both oh, could, could live. Oh, oh. so good. If I were a sculptor, Wonderful. but then again, no. Or a man who who makes potions at oh. a traveling show. Oh, don't, 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 don't stop. I know it's not much. Give me more. Yes, 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 yes. But it's the best I can do. Naughty! Don't stop! Yes! When I was watching that scene, I was like, I bet Chris likes this. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I bet he's having a ball watching Nicole Kidman ride around on the floor. Yes. That was, like, the main thing that I, like, remembered (laughs) from the movie. Like, I remember, like, naughty words, like, quoting that, like, after I saw this movie for the first time. So, there you go. There's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Those are... That's basically, those are the two for me. And Chris, I genuinely enjoyed that whole sequence too. Yeah, like as far as things I like, I really do think a lot of the performers in this movie really give it their all and really serve the amount of energy and craziness that the premise demands. But then I also think that Baz Luhrmann is such a bad filmmaker that he doesn't know when it's working and when it's not fully working. And so he like punctuates every moment and anything that's happening with like sound effects or with you know like pairing it with songs that beat the emotion of the moment like over its head and just literally say it out loud or he gives characters dialogue that is just so on the nose that it becomes comical in the bad way but again like as as far as things we enjoyed i thought a lot of the cast gave it a go they gave it a go (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Like, we talked in Romeo and Juliet how a lot of the cast, like, Seth and I didn't think that a lot of the cast was up to the Shakespeare. This is not Shakespeare, but I feel like all the performers were good at what they were tasked with doing. Like, this had a significantly, like, better caliber of actor, I think, giving better performances. I want to give major props in particular to Jim Broadbent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've always loved him. I remember in theaters, people were fucking dying laughing at the Like a Virgin scene and his performance. At the very last when they're like, oh, like they, and it, like a virgin, like, <laughs> like the champagne bottles popping. And then I just remember like laughter filling the theater. And I think in this watch in particular, I, I, paid close attention to Jim Broadbent and everything he was doing. And I was just like, this guy's fucking giving it. <laughs> Spectacular, spectacular. No words of the vernacular can describe this great event. You'll be dumb with wonderment. Returns are fixed at 10%. 
You must agree that's excellent. And on top of your feet, What do you mean by that? So exciting, the audience will stop and cheer. So delighting, it will run for 50 years. Like, he always gives it in every movie he's in. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's especially because I know what he did after this. Like, you know, he's a serious actor and gives very, like, gentle performances and he's got oh, range. Yeah. And so just watching him in this movie again, I was just like, man, he's just, like, doing it. Like, I was just, I wanted to give him, like, one of those meme claps. What is it of, like, <laughs> Orson Welles clapping? Is that <laughs> <laughs> Jim Brown, Ben, you're our Orson Welles clapping gif of the week winner. Right, yes. You're on the When We Were Young podcast. Yeah, Jim Broadbent actually won his Oscar this same year. Oh. Not for this movie, but for Iris. So mm. I think that this movie and his performance, like, also, you know, helped that a little bit. Like, people who liked that, like, rewarded him for, for that for the same reason. I forgot that he won an Oscar. Yeah, and it's well-deserved. He's a great actor. Yeah, and I just, I think the movie as a whole, like, I appreciate the commitment, not just by the actors, but just by the the filmmaking. Like, they are committing to the craziest shit. Mm. I mean, you have Kylie Minogue cameoing as a personification of absinthe singing The Sound of Music. And to me, that is just, like, committing. I was to audition for Satine, and I would taste my first glass of absinthe. And I and I really appreciate that. And I and I think that's something that I love that they are just going for it. I know that this is not for everyone, and I think they do too. Like there's just they're just going for it to to please the people that are gonna be into it. And I think it takes balls to to do something like this. Like the moment the Argentinian falls through the ceiling, like I feel like it's almost a normal-ish movie until then. And then all of a sudden it goes like five thousand, you know, miles per hour, and it's like, good luck. <laughs> trying to keep up with this movie. Like, this is what you're in for. But I like that. I I really do appreciate it. I agree that everyone in this movie should be committed. (laughs) (laughs) Before I knew it, I was upstairs, standing in for the unconscious Argentinian. Droning and strumming up my words. Can we please just stick to a little decorative piano? There seem to be artistic differences over Audrey's lyrics to Satie's song. I don't think a nun would say that about a hill. What if he sings the hills are vital in toning the disc? No, no. But the hills take and shake. No, 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 no. The hill are intonate with symphonic melodics. No. no. Uh, the, hills, the, the hills, 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 I think some of it doesn't hold up in the respect. Okay, oh, you I'll just think. You th- 
I don't like the mute black man named Chocolat who's used as a deus ex machina twice. <laughs> Who is that? Who is he? Like he comes in and he has, he serves a very important role, but I was like, I don't think I've ever seen this character before. He's just like, a guy at the Moulin Rouge. He like works at the Moulin Rouge. She's one of the Moulin Rougers. But the movie like <laughs> skips around so much. I don't think I ever got to lay eyes on him before he like does a really important thing in the movie. He does two important things. He saves Satine when she falls, when she has the coughing disease, um, when she's up high. <laughs> oh, the fainting disease, you mean? Yeah. He catches her. And then later, he just has a, a feeling. His spidey senses are like, I should go check on Satine with the Duke. And so the Duke's like about to like rape her. And then he like punches him or does something to him, I forget, and, and saves her. And I didn't like that. I was just like, can this man have some dialogue, please? And do something more than just being a deus ex machina? No, he's just a magical, silent black man. Yeah, that didn't hold up for me. That felt not good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Well, it's also something that is like a real cliche throughout like cinema is the black man who exists only to help the white leads and has no like conflict or personality of his own. Mm -hmm. Literally. Yeah, like, is he friends of Satine? Like, couldn't they think of another thing (laughs) that someone else could do that is important in any way besides throwing this guy in who's not important, but then he is like, it was very weird. And I don't know how I feel about John Leguizamo playing a French little person, to be honest. Yeah, can we talk about that? Can we talk about Toulouse-Lautrec? Yeah. I looked it up, and Toulouse-Lautrec was five feet tall. Mm. So he wasn't a little person. Yeah, he was not like a dwarf in so the just medical short. sense. So he's just short. He was just a short king. He had a disease, I think, that like made his legs shorter. So he, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like the same thing. So it was like an actual like illness that he had that resulted in him, like his legs okay. not growing yeah. all the way. That See, kind of makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make me feel better. Uh, because no. <laughs> the story you've told us of John Leguizamo being so committed to that performance that he injured himself to me feels like a perfect metaphor for this movie overall. I <laughs> I acknowledge his commitment and it's very clear. His commitment is very clear, but I mm-hmm. think every aspect of his performance doesn't work. That accent is insane and takes me what out of every single accent? second. What is the accent? It's also <laughs> almost kind of like lispy and a little bit yeah. like gay. Yeah. It's so, but is it even French? Is that supposed to be French? I Christian. don't know. I don't know. I think that his character stood out to me this time as not great. <laughs> Just like in general, like didn't didn't love him. Who really are the other characters though? Well, yeah. Like, I mean, I like I I never really <laughs> liked the black hairdo Mulan Rouger. <laughs> I don't have names. <laughs> She's the one that's like, she's she's fucking the rider. Oh, I mean, the sitar player. She's the one they <laughs> sing Roxanne to, whose name is not actually Roxanne. The bitch of the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I agree. She comes out of nowhere just to be like, I'm going to stick a fork in the plot. Like, yeah. no motivation. Like, None. does she hate Satine? Does she, mm-hmm. like, where they, like, we have no context for anything that she's doing. She literally just comes in to, like, screw up the plot. Yeah, and you know what? I've always felt that way about that character. But I, I think what stood out this time is that I've just I just know this movie so well. And so the parts that I love are a little, you know, stale because I've seen it so much. So the the parts that I don't like are just like more prominent. I'm just like noticing them more. And so she was annoying. I mean, I, I get it. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's 
it's cliches upon cliches upon cliches. <laughs> I'm not an idiot, guys. <laughs> I just no one like is, no one is saying you're an idiot. Okay, like, I just we just like... think you had terrible taste, but now we <laughs> think you have slightly less terrible taste. Good job. <laughs> Look, okay, I am a huge musicals person, right. and I love pop music, and I love mashups. And I love train mm-hmm. spotting. So the fact oh, that it's Ewan McGregor singing me pop songs <laughs> <laughs> on a stage it's in just you. Yeah. Yeah. I swoon. <laughs> and oh my God, the moment he like they're in the middle of the elephant love medley and there he's like, We should be lovers. And he's like coming out from like he like pops into the screen can you like picture the moment that i'm talking about no we have not seen this movie enough okay times. well <laughs> i have the moment he's like we should be loving i'm just like oh i'm just like, melting God. he's like smiling and he's singing to me that was another one of the moments that cemented my hatred of this movie was what they did to david bowie's heroes you know i didn't know this song when i first i didn't know like half the songs when i first saw this movie i had no idea yeah yeah it's a song about the berlin wall yeah, <laughs> like that's a song that has meaning, and this movie strips it of it. I mean, I love the Elephant Love Medley still, though. Like, I I definitely still have it in my head. Do you do you like it still, Chris? Because I know you, you said you were listening to it a lot. I have a lot to say about the Elephant Love Medley. <laughs> um, so here we go. <laughs> Thank you for that warning. <laughs> so when when I first saw this movie and bought the soundtrack, I didn't know hardly any of those songs. I knew I will always love you. I don't even remember if I knew any of the other ones because I didn't listen to that kind of music. You know, like I I didn't really have like Elton John, David Bowie. Like those weren't in my repertoire of music. Mm-hmm. So it was new to me, and I was like, these are great songs. And I actually knew that a lot of this movie was a jukebox musical repurposing a lot of songs. But I didn't know every single line of every single song, except for Come What May, was repurposed. So I actually thought, like, more of this was original. So, I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's really hard. Because, like, as pop songs, these are all pretty good and obviously very catchy and memorable songs. So they get you on that level. Because you, you know these songs. You like them. It's very easy. But in a way, they're also, they're just, like, the most generic lyrics for the most part. And it all just, like, comes together in this way that, like, it works, like, musically. I think it sounds good. But, like, We Could Be Heroes doesn't even make sense in in the context of it. So it's just, like, there's little, like, things that don't feel like they make sense. And I just, like, I wish that this movie had more of a vision behind it and was like, oh, we're going to do, like, 70s glam rock in the era of the Moulin Rouge. And then it was, like, all one type of music because it just seems like he picked kind of like really random generic songs that he liked and threw them all together like there's not really any Mm -hmm. cohesion like the lyrics aren't specific enough to really like mean anything they're all just kind of like i love you i love you and that's the the theme like over and over again and or unless it's like a queen song like the show must go on that is just literal Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that's the only exception to that is like it either has love in the title and they sing the word love a lot or (laughs) it's something that they can use literally 
Yeah, and I just like if you're actually if your canvas is any pop song ever written, I feel like you could have done a much like more clever way of like actually telling a story with song lyrics. And this is just like the story is I love you. That's it. That's pretty much the story of the movie. Okay, so this is a perfect moment for me to pitch you all my entirely <laughs> alternative storyline to this movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was a point when my brain started melting down. And my rationalizing storytelling mind had to come up with something. So here's my pitch. Ewan McGregor is actually the subject of the first successful scientific experiment in time travel. (laughs) He was sent back in time to this period of time in Paris to destroy the Bohemian Revolution and undermine their entire liberatory artistic scene and philosophy. But as a consequence of rudimentary time travel technology... Christian's memory gets fucked up. So he's got all his memories of life, and he knows all the pop culture and all the songs he's heard throughout his lifetime, but he has no fucking idea why he's in Paris several hundred years in the past. And his poor time travel addled brain neurons are firing on overdrive, trying to just figure out where and when the hell he is. So in that foggy soup, his brain keeps on spitting out things he does remember, like lines of a love song prominently featured in the movie Top Gun, as a way of trying to ground himself and reestablish his bearings here in this new time. But everyone around him at the Moulin Rouge interprets all his little scrambled brain farts as brilliant creative genius. So Christian is just happy with the adulation it brings him, and he just keeps going along with it uh, and doesn't tell anyone about his horrific plight. I think that's a kid in King Arthur's court. <laughs> it, it's it's kind of it's kind of that. It takes elements from that. Um, what was that Beatles movie? Yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday, where that guy like makes up, thinks he's making up all the Beatles songs. That's cute. Um, yeah, I drew from here and there. Um, but I, I had to come up with something, some excuse for why, like, this movie is <sighs> quoting from, like, Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong. This is quoting lines from a love song prominently featured in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. Again, there's no rhyme or reason, really, to how these songs actually advance the story in any way, but literally, or just, like, hammering on the theme of, like, quote-unquote, true love, fairy tale love. Again, it kind of just feels like Romeo and Juliet was, like, his prom- mission slip to go full-on balls to the wall. I respect the movie in that way, and of course I respect your taste in loving musicals, and especially Broadway musicals, in a way that I definitely don't. It's just not my taste. But even at that, I, I thought this movie was just manic in a way that, again, kind of undermines what are some really fun performances, and there are some interesting ideas, but then there are also like a million bajillion other ideas. While we're talking about this, I'd like to confess that I listened to the soundtrack um, to the Moulin Rouge musical, um, a musical that when I found out was going to be a musical, I was very excited. And then when the soundtrack came out, I listened to it and I fucking hated it. (laughs) I hated it. Hmm. Well, you sent us a clip of that, like performing on Good Morning America or something. I watched that and was like, well, I mean, for one thing, like it makes sense to make this movie into a musical of all things. You know, it already is that, (laughs) you know, I mean, it already is like a jukebox musical, literally. Um, Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) Like, I hated it terrible. I hated it so much. But I'm with you. And I feel like things that you're saying about the movie is how I felt listening to the Broadway soundtrack and, and watching a few clips. 
that I was just like, this felt like dinner theater. I must just love the arrangements and the kinetic energy of, of movies and just like how he directed it and, and just everything in movies. Because as a play, I think it's terrible. Like it's so cringy. And it's also filled with a lot more recent pop songs. And I think that's something that works in the movie is that they're pretty classic songs. Like there's nothing that came out in like 2000 that's like, you know, mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, I don't even know what the top pop hit of like Baby One More Time isn't in yeah. Moulin Rouge the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but in the play, they have things that came out maybe like two years before. You oh, know, really? like fi- Firework Eesh. by Katy Perry is in it. And, oh, Jesus you- Christ. And like, I think a Kesha song is it like, like something like that. Like, like I was just like, this is just, it feels, I once went to a dinner theater in Australia called Dracula's adult cabaret (laughs) and and the entire show. Yeah. The entire show um, was adults dressed as vampires singing today's pop hits. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was, you know, fun because I was drunk watching it, but it was also super cringy. And that's what the Moulin Rouge musical felt like to me is just like, now here's a song by fucking One Direction. Mm. (laughs) Like, why not? And and to me on stage, that totally doesn't work. But like in the movie, like it just works for me. Hmm. Because of just how he how he did it, how he crafted it, how I'm seeing it. I want it to work for me because, like, even as a as like the Elephant Love medley, like I obviously at one point liked it as a piece of music and listened to it often, and like there's some talent behind that to mix all those things together in that way. But like, there's so many weird choices in the music. Like, I really hate like how they use like the Nirvana song because it just like oh, I really like it doesn't so fit the aesthetic of this movie. Like, it just there's so many things and like the Roxanne number. I don't think really like makes any sense uh, because it's, yeah, that number. No, let's let's pause on that because it's the the lead actor guy in the movie Moulin Rouge Company does a dance about how it's bad to fall in love with a sex worker because you'll be too jealous. And that's when he sings Roxanne by the police. Mm-hmm. To a bunch of prostitutes. Have, you don't have to put on a red light. I think I just really like that arrangement. I really like that arrangement. It's it's surprising. It's like a fun arrangement. I mean, that's what a lot of, most of this is, is fun arrangements of classic songs. It felt like a moment that like existed because the leads had to go change their costumes, <laughs> which obviously isn't yes. a thing in a movie. It's the actor bathroom break. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne, you don't have to put on that red light. Walk the streets for money. You don't care if it's wrong or if it is right. Roxanne, you don't have to wear that dress tonight. Roxanne, you don't have to sell your body to the night. But it's like, again, we don't know, like that character was just, you know, like sabotaging the relationship. And now we're singing a song about like their love and, and it, like, it's like she's back on their side. It, it just, it's incoherent in, in terms of like what it actually means. Yeah. I mean, I can't argue with you. Yeah, it's It's just completely incoherent and episodic. But I like how it's done. And I think that 
when I first saw this, the way that he made the movie just blew me away, even though it's full of cliches, full of fuzzy like motives, characters lacking depth. I get it. And I think that after seeing it so many times and being so familiar with it, like it's wearing on me a bit because I actually think it's really, really fun until thing the tone gets really like dark. Mm-hmm. Like I like that Roxanne sequence. Um but after that, I'm just kind of like kind of fading out because I don't care that much about Satine and Christian's relationship. And I and I kind of already know what's going to happen because she has the coughing disease. <laughs> like that I'm not invested. So that's why these days it's less of a fun watch because I feel like all the fun stuff for me is like more in the beginning. And then it just kind of gets yeah. a, a bit of a slog. That in particular is what I meant when I opened with like saying like my notes are the same for Romeo and Juliet because it's (laughs) the same thing where the movie starts with a lot of ideas and some of them work for me and some of them don't, but there's a lot of energy and there's a vision behind it. And in both movies, I really feel like he just like loses interest. Like he's telling these really operatic love stories that are very broad and very like Romeo and Juliet is a real, you know, text that we know. And this is not, this is invented by him but in both cases i feel like he has no interest like he's just like (laughs) making it on autopilot and it it just it's so cliche it's just the most generic thing in the world and it's like painful how generic it is you know what it feels like to me and i'm just like making this connection now it feels like this is baz lerman's toy box and you're like watching his inner child pick up these toys and play with them make all these cool fun costumes for them and have like these momentary operatic storylines but chris exactly like you like i feel like there's a point at which he just kind of gets bored with it and just lets it kind of run on its own steam you know and and becky like i i appreciate like understanding uh, again like how much of a slog the second half of the movie is especially because we all know the conclusions are kind of foretold even if we're just talking about like the the love is real like kind of fairy tale ending but especially in terms of the quote-unquote consumption that satine has (laughs) (coughs) oh i have it too (laughs) we need to talk about this because it begins as her her fainting syndrome, which I think is another thing that we haven't addressed here, is that it's it's problematic. This movie upholds the stereotype that the only way beautiful women die is by fainting. <laughs> and that medically is just not true at all. Are you a doctor? Um, legally, I cannot answer that right now. There is pending <laughs> litigation in court. You could literally just say no. <laughs> but also no. Um, <laughs> but yeah... The thing that she dies of, uh, I looked it up because I was like, wait, what was consumption again? Uh, it's tuberculosis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew that. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, Satine is a super spreader event, and everyone <laughs> in this movie would have been killed by her absolute spreading and free-floating particle ejection. Wear a mask, Satine. Wear a mask. Honestly, she didn't understand social distancing or any of the CDC recommendations. Um, But yeah, again, it was like, that was just another kind of cliche plot device thing that to me was so funny. Like the the moment that's supposed to be so dramatic when she falls (laughs) while singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Like it ended up being funny to me. It is funny. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It just, 
Yeah. Well, it's also the way he films it. Is he like, because like the movie is so manically like on fast forward. Like I honestly feel like someone, <laughs> I, I keep being like, where's my remote? Someone, like I, I elbowed the remote and it's on fast forward. I'm like, oh no, this is just a Boz Lerman movie. Mm-hmm. But then like he slows down for these moments in this really awkward way that just like, yeah. it's so jarring. And it's just like, Ugh! and she just, it's like unintentionally <laughs> funny. <laughs> Yeah, and then half the time it, it looks like it's filmed in anime frame rate and I does know, this like yeah. really choppy slow-mo shit. It, it drove me up a fucking wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then like, I mean, my other thing with her dying is just like, why is she like on stage if she's that? <laughs> like, there's right. so, She dies basically like right as soon as she gets off stage. And it's just like, oh my God, like really you couldn't even set it in like an hour later. It's just like she's done with the show and then she like collapses and it's just like the most cliche. And again, like, even if she wasn't a typhoid satine, like, I think she would have been, uh, she would have known that she was dying. The, the the conceit of this movie is that they, like, keep it from her that she is oh, yeah. in the process of nearly being dead. <laughs> I forgot about that part. That part's bonkers. <laughs> I would be able to look past the fact that this movie is such a confined little thing if it didn't just kind of feel like a toy box and Buzz Lerman takes all his dolls out and plays with them and you know sings all his favorite songs and then puts them away to me it felt like like a bad Disney movie like Disney mm-hmm. is actually very mm-hmm. witty in the way these set but it felt like a lazy Disney movie like like doing like Cinderella but then like again like yeah getting bored and and not doing any of the actual things that made the Disney movies great, like Disney fan fiction. Can we talk about what the moral of the movie is? I think I think it's the last line, which is the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. But like, does Christian like learn anything? <laughs> like he comes to Paris wanting to be in love and be a writer. Hmm. And I guess he got to be a writer because this bad thing happened to him and he has something to write about. I thought the moral of this story was faster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess I just, it doesn't seem like he really like learned anything. And he's also just sad at the end. (laughs) Yeah, again, my my greedy sci-fi reinterpretation of this movie is the only thing that makes any sense because really his ultimate goal is to try to get back to the present uh, and he never can. I had a lot of problems with just like the way this movie is framed because he's like narrating it but he's narrating it like in what you're seeing and it's like completely like it's Mm -hmm. not a hard story to figure out like the (laughs) motivations of the characters. There's not much depth. I do appreciate the beginning, the very beginning and the very end are very like slow and low key and they like build towards this thing. And at the end, it like goes back to being like a soft ending. Like the ending credits are like a very like low key song. Mm -hmm. And I I felt like that was a good choice so that you can like decompress after everything you've just seen and like take it all in. But like, why does he have to be sad? Why does like she had to die and then he's just sad telling us the sad story? Well, it's like, not a very good story, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. If, like, I mean, the only reason it works here is because it's a musical. But, like, if this was, like, a drama, you'd be like, and? Like, there's just, there's so little to it. Maybe the actual story is that Christian's just a terrible writer. Well, he is. <laughs> the Maharaja. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah. And, like, on the note of, like, her dying and everything, like, I thought it would have been so much more interesting if, like, the Duke shot her at the end because it would have been, like, the consequences of their love affair is what killed her. 
Like, I don't know why she needed to be dying in the first place. Like, it would have been a lot more interesting if it wasn't just this kind of, like, deus ex machina. The whole her dying thing felt weird to me. I mean, I think that's part of um, one of the operas that it's based off of. Mm -hmm. I mean, he chose to base it off that. Um, I mean, the whole, it just, it feels very, it, it is like an opera. It's a soap opera. It's a regular opera. It's Bollywood. Like, it's all very, very generic, universal themes um, not very complex. And I, I get that. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't, you're like, you, you're like, after the movie, you're like, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I I don't think they're universal themes. I think they're like universal pictures themes. No, I mean like universal, like love conquers all, you know, like things like that. Truth, beauty, freedom, love. Yeah. But that's very Hollywood. And like, that's why I wanted to pick back up on, you know, like one of the reviews you talked about. Because she like talking about how this is like one of the most postmodern movies ever. And it's just a pastiche of so many other things that especially came through to me. Yeah, you're right that it's like pulling from all these different genres, but it's a very Hollywood-ish version of all of that. Like, there's not even anything about it that's particularly French or even European to me. No. (laughs) Do you guys know the scene I hate the most? (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. Wait, let me think. (laughs) The scene you hate the most, I guess, is it something we haven't talked about yet? We mentioned it, but we didn't talk about it in depth. The can-can? Is it the scene with the Argentinian falling through the ceiling? <laughs> no, it's like a virgin. Oh, really? Uh, I yeah. hate really? it. Really? I hate it. Why? I really didn't like that. Well, like a virgin. Touch for the very first time. Like a virgin. Your heart's beating. In time, if you all her love, her fear is fading fast. It's giving it all for you. Only love can love. I love it. <laughs> Why do you hate it? It's so off topic. It doesn't make any sense. It gives Jim Broadbent a chance to sing and dance. That I like, <laughs> but it's mostly the Duke. And so I have a lot of big problems with the Duke character, too. Because <laughs> mm-hmm, he's like a kids in the hall character. <laughs> Yeah. I thought he was Scott Thompson. <laughs> it I looks did. like Scott Thompson. Really That's exactly why exa- I said that. <laughs> he looks exactly like Scott Thompson. Thank you, Seth. We're going to have to post a side-by-side. Yeah. Really it, well. it really looks like Scott Thompson from Kids <laughs> in the Hall. I think you can't make him that cartoony if he's going to be the villain. And, like, this obviously isn't, like, a high-stakes movie, but he's just, like, <laughs> so ridiculous that there's no tension around him. Mm-hmm. And he's in so much. Yeah, and he's so fake and wispy. Yeah, I kept thinking, like, he really should have been more like Billy Zane in Titanic, where it's like, you know that, like, she's not going to end up with him because, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's the same kind of story where it's, like, obvious, you know, what, what the love story is. But, like... <laughs> But Billy Zane is at least someone like handsome and charismatic, and you're like, okay, like I, I can see a world where she would marry this guy. Like here, it's like, mm, no, you're not going to end up with Nicole Kidman, random guy. Yeah, like a Billy Zane could like plausibly compete for her affections. Mm-hmm. The fact that they deliberately don't do it that way just it passes on adding any real stakes to these characters. Yeah, like and Billy Zane had so much menace in Titanic. Like he had mm-hmm. this really great like understated. I get it. You like Titanic. Panic. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's such a like point of comparison for this, I think, because it's such a like it another is. star-crossed lovers movie. Um, 
And it's also a movie that draws on a whole range of cliches, and especially like Hollywood cliches. Mm -hmm. But the way that it does it is so thoughtful and character-driven and grounded in the characters that it works. And that's our review of Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) I can't let this go by without talking more about Boz Lerman's direction, because that's <laughs> Thank like, you. so all of these story things like really annoy me. Like this, this isn't a great story in a lot of the ways that we've pointed out, but like, you know, maybe I could like turn my brain off and just have a fun ride, but the, his direction drives me up the wall. Yeah. Like it is so distracting. Kind of already talked about like the, the speed of it, but like the editing is so choppy. It's like a nightmare. Like there are so many moments, especially like because this is so based on Broadway and theater productions, like you cannot see a single moment of what's happening because he's cutting around all the, like you don't get to see any of the dancing. Like there's no, like, mm-hmm. like that's part of what's fun about watching a show is like you, people are dancing and singing these and you get the sense that people are actually doing it. And even in a movie musical, like you, you stop on that and he, he does stop on it in the elephant love medley, which is I think why that scene works a little bit better than a lot of the rest of this. And like when he first goes into the Moulin Rouge, you would normally like build that up and like have him like walking in and it just like, is like zoom. And it's just like, what? And (laughs) I'm even being coherent, like explaining. (laughs) And no scene, like scenes just don't like begin or end end like i feel like every scene like starts in the middle of a scene and yes. it's just like the middle of a conversation and then it goes uh and then there's all these like cartoon sound effects that are mm-hmm. like uh whip like whoosh. so much it's like a comic book every time I yeah. hate it every time. Now, thank you, thank you. Like, because I, I really, with Romeo and Juliet, there was a lot that could, you know, at least tempt me to keep watching and, you know, enjoy the image or something like that. But like with Moulin Rouge, it was just so incoherent and insanely manic that it was a slog to get through. And it made me think, I finally realized like what my comparison point was for this in the kind of frenetic nature of the cinematography, the editing and all of it. It reminds me in a way of Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Caro, like who did the movie Delicatessen um, Mm -hmm. and City of Lost Children and Amelie and A Very Long Engagement. His filmmaking style involves, I would say, usually the same amount of uh, frenetic activity and constant motion with the camera work and like very much using the camera as a character in the storytelling and very much using editing and and all kinds of cross-cutting and stuff you know, to like add to the emotion of the moment or add to the drama or the action. Um, I just think that he's such a better storyteller and uh, has more of an actual solid vision so that, you know, his movies, I would argue, have much stronger storytelling in the writing too, but especially in terms of using that very conscious, active camera work and very active editing in a way that enhances and uplifts the material. I also was very confused about the spatial reality of the Moulin Rouge. Did anyone Ooh, else yeah. have this problem? Oh, yeah. Like, how is big it is inside it or inside? outside? It's <laughs> <laughs> both. What? How, like, how many thousands of people can fit in there? So the elephant is outside. Yes. <laughs> but it also feels like it's inside the Moulin Rouge. Well, I guess it's in a courtyard. 
Why is there a courtyard inside a theater? Well, there might be a courtyard before you enter, before you officially enter the theater. That's why you need to like show people like walking into a space so you know where you are. I was so confused. I was constantly like thinking people were inside and then I'm like, what? You're outside? Like, just like things like that are so incoherent and confusing. Like, I just never quite knew what was going on. The real Moulinage doesn't look anything like that either. <laughs> By the way, I was really sad when I was, didn't have a giant elephant outside. Did you register your complaints with the manager? No, I didn't. <laughs> I've still never seen any movie like this. I still really appreciate it. I have tired of it <laughs> some, um, but I, I do really appreciate just how singular it is. There, it, there really hasn't been a movie that's like this you know, for, for good or bad. Um, like he's just, he's very much his, has his own style. And I don't know of another filmmaker that even gets close to like being Boslerman-esque. I will agree that this movie, like, especially when it came out, it felt very singular. I mean, even the idea of doing this kind of a musical felt singular, but in a way, I feel like it's only because no one else could get the rights. <laughs> because like it wouldn't be that <laughs> yeah. hard to write something like this if you knew you could get all the rights. It's just like that no one could get the rights. But it's also his directorial vision, whether you like it or not. Like it's he's just very much himself, and he has been since Strictly Ballroom, and again for better or worse. With you know, we'll talk about his follow-ups. Mm-hmm. He's just very much him. Yeah, and my biggest overall thing I realized is that I just really don't like him. I don't like his work. I don't like his style. I don't think he's a good director. I don't think he can tell a story to save his life. And I find everything about him that defines him as Baz Luhrmann-esque to be tacky and without charm. Yeah. Man. I pretty much agree with that. Like with this movie, just to sum up, (laughs) I think it's obvious how I feel. But (laughs) Romeo and Juliet had Shakespeare. So that kind of got me through it. Mm -hmm. You know, and he had a template to work with. It's a hook. It's a good hook. Yeah. And I think that helped with that is like having something to anchor him. This was pure boss. (laughs) And (laughs) well, the anchor he had was these pop songs, but it's just it's borrowed emotion. Like none, no one actually says anything interesting that isn't a lyric from a pop song. Like that's the only real interest here. Like none of the dialogue really is interesting. Can we talk about the dialogue? (laughs) Yeah. I put on the subtitles at a certain point because the dialogue was just so uniquely terrible from the, from the beginning of the movie when they're doing like the quick cutting through setting up what's happening in France at the time. And I think this was said by like Toulouse Lautrec at first is like, it's the end of the century. The Bohemian revolution is here. And then like the, (laughs) the lead actor guy in the, the theater company is like you are a beautiful woman i love sex <laughs> those yeah. are literally his lines and i'm yeah, like they, they might as well have just had a title card that says like it is the turn of the century and everyone was feeling very bohemian <laughs> yeah no i remember that line <laughs> <laughs> i did not <laughs> it was amazing i was gonna ask you guys which one you think is the better movie but i think that i have my answer <laughs> Yeah, I think it's yeah. Romeo and Juliet, which was surprising to me, honestly. Like I, like I said, I come into this movie thinking I should like it because I do like that elephant love medley in a way. You know, it's not high art, but it, it is entertaining. And so when I think of this movie, that's what I think of. And I think of pretty visuals, which haven't aged particularly well in a lot of ways, I think. Like there's parts of this, especially the end of that, where it really just looks 
like they're singing in front of a screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> and like things with like the moon having a mustache. I'm just like, mm, like this veers into like really cartoony territory. No shit. <laughs> And like there are there are times when over the topness and that kind of Broadway, you know, belting it up mentality. Like there are times when I can get down with that. Like Down with Love, another Ewan McGregor movie. I love Down with Love. I really enjoyed that movie. Oh, let's talk about Down with Love and more Ewan McGregor. <laughs> we'll get singing. more common ground on that. I haven't rewatched it in forever, but like I have. It's great. That still. was a movie where I felt like the adoption of all the like classic Hollywood genre conventions and like all of that postmodernism I felt like kind of worked and it kind of gelled and all came together. That's because it knew what it was like pastiching. It was one thing. It was like the sixties like rom-com. Yeah. And this is trying to pastiche like many decades of music plus turn of the century France plus (laughs) cartoons plus operas. Yeah. Like, to me, it feels like a medley in search of a movie. Absolutely. Like, that was kind of the thing that came to me when I was watching it this time. And I'm just really shocked that this was a Best Picture nominee and such an Oscars juggernaut. That is crazy to me. I'm not surprised. I mean, clearly I liked the movie, but um, <laughs> it was a huge, like, z- it was in the zeitgeist. Like It was very zeitgeisty. And I, and I do remember, like, even though I didn't see it at the time, like, all of my friends were into it. And I remember it being, if not, like, influential for a lot of movies, like, influential for a lot of, like, fashion and stuff that was around mm-hmm. that time. It seemed like yep. that was kind of one of the starting points of, like, steampunk fashion, just because that relates so much to, like, turn-of-the-century France and, you know, that kind of flair and style. Um, yeah. It was totally, I mean, I think it deserves its Oscars for costumes and, what was it, art direction? Sure. Like, Sure. Um, those, yeah. Like, et- but being nominated for editing, like, shocks me. Um, and Best Picture kind of yeah. shocks me. I mean, maybe it was a fairly I mean, fairly a lot of the year. time, Best Editing nominations are most editing. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it has that, for sure. It definitely won that. Do you want to guess which movie I think is a better movie? Well, after the conversation, I think it's probably Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no, I still, I still like love parts of Moulin Rouge, but I think I mean you didn't guys didn't really like it, but I think Romeo and Juliet is his least flawed movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, I think he succeeds at everything he's trying to do in that movie, and I think that there's great things that I love still in Moulin Rouge, and then there's some parts that just don't work for me still, and that could have been better at the time. Even you know, like I, you know, whether that's the story or the dialogue or just you know pick one i guess um, <laughs> um but i but i think that romeo and juliet for me is barely flawed at all yeah I, I mean before we had discussed these movies i definitely would have said you thought moulin rouge was better maybe you, you would have thought that before you rewatched them yeah mm-hmm. um but o- honestly after this conversation like i'm like looking at moulin or uh, i'm looking at romeo and juliet and being like huh pretty good pretty good <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, again, it's like uh, Becky, I'll, I'll absolutely heartily agree that like Romeo and Juliet is the best of the Baz Luhrmann movies I've seen <laughs> and probably will remain that way. Like, I'm guessing it will. Yeah. Baz has directed two follow ups since Moulin Rouge, two feature length films, which is not many. That's no, not, it's not. Yeah. 2008's Australia, which, uh, personal note, I saw it in Australia. 
Ooh. That was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Um, and two, 2013's The Great Gatsby. Um, neither was as zeitgeisty as his previous two films, though The Great Gatsby earned $350 million world, worldwide and Australia earned $211 million worldwide. So they wow. outperformed Moulin Rouge and Romeo wow. and Juliet, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Australia is considered like a bomb because I think it was also it's super considered, expensive. Yeah, a flop. It was expensive, but it made a lot of money. Maybe not enough to like consider it a success, but I was like, sh- I was, I was writing this up, being like, oh, and they both like bombed. No, they did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like two hundred and eleven million dollars. I, I don't, uh, I didn't look up the budget for it, but it was also not a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't good. Yeah. yeah, I haven't I haven't seen Australia, but I watched the trailer and I hate his style of filmmaking so much. And the whole trailer, though, itself is a hundred percent of every single story beat of the entire movie in two minutes. So yeah. like having watched that trailer, I don't need to watch the movie now. I saw it when it came out and it was quite bad, but it was bad in a different way. I'll say that. Mm. I don't remember it being like choppy. Or anything like that, or manic. It was just boring. It's yeah. a boring story. Um, the Great Gatsby, I actually watched maybe half of, maybe less, and I had to turn it off. I hated it. Yeah, yeah. Did for some reason the thing that worked in the Mulaners for me did not work with the Great Gatsby. Like maybe I just don't like that story, or maybe his style has gotten old. Like I, I don't know what it was, but I cannot get through that movie. There's a certain segment of critics though that actually like the Great Gatsby. Like it's hmm. there are some critics that praise it as like a good film i don't understand it because i watched it i I don't like it um (laughs) i think it has the same problems as the rest of these movies yeah i watched the trailer i hate his style of filmmaking so much (laughs) toby mcguire is so horribly miscast in it he just seems totally wrong uh and elizabeth debicki seems like the mvp based on all the video (laughs) evidence i've seen Uh, that's what the the, critics say she's the most fascinating (laughs) thing on screen uh, as she, well, she usually, usually is. is. Yeah. And Boz has done like a little bit of advertising and some theater. He produced the TV series, The Get Down, and I think he directed maybe the pilot. So he's working on an Elvis biopic right now. <laughs> so that should be coming out soon. Oh, wow. <laughs> or not. I don't know. I don't know what stage of devel- development it's in right now, but I think that he's working on something with Elvis, which, you know, fits his whole thing of like music and performance. So I think that fits. If you could see my face, it's a very cringing face. <laughs> yeah. I don't look forward to that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I am either. But the next time I'm in Paris, I'm still going to visit the Moulin Rouge and do my little kicky dances. Please never stop doing your kicky dances, Becky. Like, that's worth that's worth it all. That's worth it yeah. all to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all the podcast we can, can, can fit into this episode of When We Were Young. <laughs> On our next episode, When We Were Young presents the early, late, mid to late 90s summer alien invasion spectacular. <laughs> It's two spectaculars in a row we're having since this was our spectacular spectacular. It's a spectacular (laughs) summer on the way, really. So we're going to take a look at the alien invasion that happened in the mid-90s with films including Independence Day, Contact, Men in Black, and Mars Attacks. So we will be looking at how aliens invaded us in all kinds of genres and tones and quality. (laughs) Were they all summer movies? No, Mars Attacks was like December, I think. Should have been a summer movie. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming next month. When We Were Young is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. 
If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your fine podcast products. You can rate and review us five stars or more on Apple Podcasts so that more people will see and hear about the show. And as we said earlier, please contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young. I have been Seth. And I, I'll drink all the time. (laughs) And I probably owe Adele a royalty check. (laughs) (laughs) We should be loved.